Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org. Good morning. Hey, again, if you're a guest with us, we are so glad uh, that you're here. Uh, I would also want to just encourage you just in a couple of things. Make sure you come back next week. Uh, our senior pastor, Pastor Larry Burbacher, is, um, and, and have him in your prayers this week. They are at our, every other year, the uh, National Assemblies of God. They come together for a giant conviction. They pray. They're making uh, decisions for our denomination as a, as a fellowship. And so um, make sure you lift them up in prayers. And uh, if you're a guest, make sure you come back and hear him next week. Um, you are, I just want to say you're blessed with what I believe the greatest communicator in the country and Pastor Larry. And so make sure, make sure you get back as, uh, as we continue our series on uh, kings and kingdoms. If you have your Bibles, take them out and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, we are in August any, anybody, back to school is right around the corner. Any parents excited? I am pumped. We are ready. Uh, in my house, we are, we are a people of routine, and summer messes with that routine. It just it, it messes you up. We have, we have four kids. I have a two-year-old daughter by the name of Ray. I have a nine-year-old son by the name of Jack. And I have twin boys that are 11, Ben and Sam. And so summer for us is wide open and it is crazy. And uh, when we get in it, we get in it a little out of routine. And uh, I I find myself uh, saying what my father always said to me that like for some reason when we're talking about chores in summertime, the response is it's summer. We don't have... and I'm like, it's, and then I find me going in like that. Well, you live in this house, you know, and we, I don't give you allowance because you live here. And I give them allowance. But like, like, you know, you have those moments like it's summertime and we get out of routine. Uh, hey, go outside and play because it's summer. There you go. Uh, I would rather play video games because it's summer, right? And we have these, com- which by the way, I want to sometimes take a sledgehammer to the game console and just get outside Enjoy the South Carolina humidity, drink some water, and go run in the woods, like go do something. And so, well, we don't want to do that because it's, it's summer. And uh, I, I find this conversation often repeating those kind of things. I think, I think, though, if we're honest, we all have these moments. We all have these moments where it's kind of like we know what we're supposed to do, but we kind of find ourselves in the back of our mind saying it's summer. Uh, we have this, maybe this twinge of selfishness where we say, hey, this is, this is my time. Maybe although I, I know that I'm supposed to do this, here is what I really want to do. Here's how I really want to behave. Here's where I really want to go. I know I'm, I'm kind of supposed to do this, as a dad and do this as a husband, but this is what feels good for me. It's summer. I know this is how I'm supposed to work at my job and for my boss and with my employees, but I would kind of rather do this and do it this way because it's summer. And I think if we're honest, we find that most of our mistakes in life 
come out of these moments where we know what we're supposed to do, but selfishness creeps in and we don't do it. Second Samuel chapter 11, we've been in our series at all of our campuses on kings and kingdoms. In this chapter, we'll be looking at one of the biggest scandals in all of Scripture. And the writer, the narrator of this story, of this chapter, is very blunt. And, and he doesn't hold back to reveal this part of David's story. And this part of David's story will mark him and somewhat shame him forever. And before we get into this text this morning, we need to understand, understand something about that word shame. And even right and wrong and how it applies to the cultural, cultural of Israel at that time. We need to understand our story. Sometimes, and I'm guilty of this, we read scripture often through the lens of our Western world. There are two different types of cultures. We have in Bible times, we have a culture that was set up and how they, how they uh, developed their morals and all this stuff. And we have our Western world culture. You see, we, we are in Western culture where we serve kind of the individualist culture. Now, now an individualist culture says that there is a culture of innocent and guilt. That there are laws in our society, there are rules in our church and in our home, and we hope those codes of context will be internalized within a person. And therefore, the goal in our culture is that, that when a person breaks these rules, our conscience or the Holy Spirit pricks us, and in fact, we're hoping that this conscience will discourage the person from breaking these rules in the first place. And so for our culture, our Western culture, the battle is inside the person. In collective cultures, much like non-West cultures, in, in Bible times, it was an honor and shame culture. Honor and shame. And the driving force was not, you didn't want to, not to bring shame upon yourself or upon your family or upon your church, your village, your tribe, or even your faith. And so the determining factors of, of even right and wrong hinged on the expectation of others. They actually didn't kind of override morals or right and wrong. They actually are the ethical standards that's established by communal living. living. And you do wrong by failing to meet the expectations of the community. And you'll see this all over kind of the Asian world and over there in the Middle East. And it's still happening today. As we, as we read this story, we need to understand the culture and the reference that it's coming from. Because in our story of David and Bathsheba, you will see that it is steeped in this honor and shame type language. So stand with me for the reading of God's word in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we're going to jump right in uh, with verse 1. In the spring of the year, everybody say that with me. In the spring of the year, very important. In the spring of the year, a time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with them and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged them at Reba. And David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. He saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. She had been purifying herself from uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, 
Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Father, today I pray, as we look at your word, at somewhat of a a scandalous scripture, somewhat of a heavy scripture, God, I pray that you would open up our eyes, you would open up our hearts to hear, to see, see things new and different. And God, you would transform us, and we would leave here forever different and changed. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. As you're seated, just real quick, tell your neighbor they look good. Just you look good this morning. You look good. Right out, right out the gate, the writer tells us that in spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sends Joab and his servants with him. So he is not there. David was not where he was supposed to be. He was lounging at the palace while Joab is doing the kingly role of leading the army. And already you have the issue of honor and shame being introduced. David is not acting honorably as a king should, doing what a king is supposed to do. Isn't that kind of how things start? What we're supposed to do. You see, David was supposed to, his title was the warrior king. He was supposed to lead the battles. He was supposed to fulfill the promise and make Israel a separate people, a people after God's heart. He was to drive out the pagan idolatry worship from the promised land and establish tabernacle and temple and a temple for God to dwell with his people. And yet, when kings go out to war, David is in the palace. He sent someone else to do his battle while he's in the palace doing what he's not supposed to be doing. I want to just say that this will be our temptation for everyone in this room to say, hey, do what you want to, and while you do what you want to, someone else will be fighting the battle. Someone else will be being the warrior that you're called to be. Because I think here's the fact, is that sometimes it's easier to sit in the palace, to do kind of what you want to do instead of what you're supposed to do. That's always the case, isn't it? Every day we're faced, I want to say this to you, every day you and I are faced with springtime decisions. That we, we kind of know what we're supposed to do with the family, the job, the spouse, but it's kind of what I want to do right now. And I have to look out for me and I have this desire to do for me what I want to do. For David, not only is he in the wrong place, but matters kind of get worse. I mean, you know, just personally, and maybe you've experienced this, that there's something about being in the wrong place that often leads to the wrong decisions. There's something about being in the wrong place that often leads to the wrong decision. And it says that David gets out of his bed, and he strolls on the rooftop and sees a beautiful woman bathing. Now I want to get something out here that, that you may not be familiar with. Again, honor and shame culture and, and what's going on here. But most scholars believe the way the narrator is writing this, he wants you to understand something. Women then or now don't bathe in places where they could be seen publicly. It's late in the afternoon, probably evening, as most, there's a, there's a, a phrase on timeline depending on the translation that you have. That Bathsheba has to provide sufficient light for bathing, but also sufficient light to be seen while bathing. We may assume that Bathsheba was aware that her rooftop is actually visible from the palace, notably from the king's balcony. 
And in ancient times, people were very cognitive of their proximity to the seat of power. Most scholars really believe that this story is told to imply that she intended on being with the king or to tempt the king. And her plan works. David likes what he sees. He asks his servant to find out who she is. And so he says to his servants, get her. And he says, get her, even though he knows that she is Uriah's wife. And he says, get her. Here's the thing. Here's the thing for you and me. Apathy is what happens in those springtime decisions. The apathy in our hearts, the apathy in our life often leads us to that rooftop fall. Being in the wrong place at the wrong time leads to those wrong decisions. And I believe that there's something about apathy in our life, something about the supposed to's, is that, that kind of we, we should be fighting to extend the kingdom. We should be doing what we're supposed to do and we find ourselves doing what we're not. See, apathy and laziness, listen to me, has a way of pushing standards out the window. It has a way of letting us lay on the couch. And watch this, watch this progression. It has a way of us pushing standards, has a way of us laying on the, on the couch. And what apathy does, it robs you of your purpose. It robs you of your purpose. And because your purpose is robbed or taken, somebody else is now fighting your battles. Now here's the catch. Because of that, I believe most people become entitled. The misconception is that apathy causes us to shrink back and be little and not do anything. I think apathy actually causes pride to swell. Because what happens in apathy, we live a jaded life. And when, and when you live a jaded life, when you, you understand that you're missing out on a calling, and because of that now, we have to go above and beyond with our language. We have to go above and beyond with what we take. We have to go above and beyond remembering the past. We have to go above and beyond in our bragging, and we brag and we take things. Because inside, we know we've missed it. So on the outside, we have to appear cocky and entitled, and so we take to fill the void. And the king says, get her, get her. So David and his servants, they get her and he sleeps with her probably for an extended period of time and she becomes pregnant. Now many, many misread here. Many assume, and I've preached this before, we assume that a measure of privacy is there that is not. We assume that there was some type of privacy there, but it wasn't in the ancient world. David's adultery with Bathsheba was not, I want you to get this, was not a private affair. As soon as the king sent a servant to inquire of the woman, everyone in the palace would be talking. Notice it says that he sent messengers. There's a plural. He sent messengers to bring her to the palace. And you get the idea that, again, the entire palace would know as the wife of Uriah is paraded, most likely dressed in a certain way as she walks through the palace. The wife of Uriah came and spends not one night, but probably many. And then it says that, very specific, she is sent away. Now, again, this is the shaming culture. Notice it says that she was sent away, not that she left. Now everyone in the palace would know that she has been shamed and sent away because David didn't choose as the king, which he could have done, to buy her her, or keep her. And she sends word back now, notice more words coming back, that she is pregnant. This would also be public news everybody would know. Everyone would also know that David sends word to Joab to bring Uriah off of the battlefield. It's public, it's out there, it's affecting the entire community. 
And David's asking Uriah to come home. And what he is asking in this, and again, everybody would know about this, that if Uriah, if Uriah comes and spends the night with his wife, the baby is technically Uriah's. And even though everyone kind of knew otherwise, honor would be restored among the two men. So you have in the scripture, Uriah comes home and he's met by David. And small talk ensues and it happens and he asks what's going on in the battle. And then he makes a plea. He says, I'm going to send you to your house. Go wash up. There is a gift, a feast for you and spend the night and sleep with your beautiful wife. But Uriah doesn't play David's game. In fact, verse 9 says that Uriah sleeps at the door of the king's house with all his servants and the Lord and did not go down to his house. Now, this is the key because it's a public statement that Uriah is saying to everyone as he's sleeping with the servants in public, he's saying to everyone in the entire community, I know what's happened with David and I'm not letting him off the hook. So David, what does he do? He he ups the ante. He asks Uriah, why did you not go home? And, and look at this powerful, look at this powerful response. Uriah says to David in verse 11, the ark and Israel, which last week we talked about the ark represented the presence of the Lord. So the presence of the Lord in Judah dwell in booths. My Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field in tents. So then I go to my house and eat and drink. Look at this language and lie with my wife as you live. And as our soul lives, I will do nothing. His response in the honor and shame culture actually shames David in three ways. First, Uriah notes, he notes something, and this is key, that everyone, with the exception of one person, was where they were supposed to be. Everyone was where they were supposed to be but David. They were warriors. They're on the battlefield. The ark in the presence of God of Jude. My Lord Joab and the servants, they're camping and they're fighting. Everyone is where they're supposed to be, but you're not, David. Second thing Uriah notes and he points out, he says, Joab, my Lord, who should be his Lord? David. But David is in the palace sleeping with his wife. So now he says, Joab, my Lord. Joab, my Lord, the commander of the army, pointing out. So not only is he saying you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, but someone else is doing your job. Lastly, he says, shall I sleep with my wife? Indicating now he knows exactly what David wants him to do and what he has done, and he's not going to cooperate. So David, he tries one more time, and he gets him completely wasted. The plan doesn't work. He sleeps again on the mat with the servants. Now it's clear to everyone, let me say that again, it's clear to everyone, the whole area, including David, that Uriah will not give in and he will not give David an honorable way out of his mess. So David takes the low road. He arranges Uriah to be killed in the battle by placing him on the front lines. And the narrator also wants us to notice that not only Uriah is killed, but other men die as well. It's a tragic scene. It's a scandal. It's, it's a story of twists and turns and crazy things going on. This morning, I, I want to give you two very practical lessons today about behavior and some things that we must do practically for solutions to that behavior. You ready? If you have your bulletins, take them out. Number one, the first thing you're going to see is that selfishness is messy. Selfishness 
is messy. Some of you in here, you have a powerful testimony of this. When you lived a selfish life, when you went rogue, when you did your own thing, you can see the consequences of where that went and how that followed. It's this, it's this idea that we know what we're supposed to do and we don't do it, and it mess, it's messy. Sin will always destroy and wreak havoc. And what looks so good and so right for us in the moment will actually destroy your purpose. Look at the confrontation with Uriah again. You're not where you're supposed to be. So now you become apathetic and title. Someone else is filling your purpose. So now someone else is extending that kingdom that you're supposed to do. So now you take in selfishness what's not yours. You've sinned and because of that it leads to death. It kind of echoes what James will write about sin. In James 1.15 it says, Desire, when is it conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. You see, here's what I believe. I believe that one of the biggest attacks of the enemy, and it has been from the beginning of time, is to go against what you know you ought to do. To take the fruit. You remember the conversation with the serpent in the garden? Take the fruit. You're missing out on something. You need to be like God. You owe it to yourself. God's holding out. If he was a good God, he would give you this. And from the beginning of time, at the same time, our creator's design has been purposed and it has been set up a certain way. And if you choose to live outside that purpose and calling, it leads to death. It's messy. Sin is messy. Selfishness, this entitlement, not where you're supposed to be. It's a loss of calling and purpose and you end up taking what is not yours. You may say, uh, Pastor Jason, how... What can I take away? How can I guard against this? I I think this realization must happen for you and I. And it must happen not just a one-time thing, but this needs to happen for you and I on a daily basis. You and I must understand this. And it's in your notes, that little line underneath. You must understand that you are a warrior. What? I don't know any type of karate moves, Pastor Jason. You're a a warrior. You have a purpose. You have a destiny. And, And you must understand that being in the center of God's will is the best possible place to be. I tell you what, I think I grew up... We, we did youth ministry here for 10 years and saw some amazing things and God do some amazing things. But I think we, we tragically undersell the goodness of God. We, we undersell it. It is the best thing going. How many of you know what it's like to live in the world? How many of you know what it's like? And then how many of you know what it's like to be set free and to be put in the center of God's will? It, it, it is the best thing going. And, and when I give scriptures like his mercies are new every morning, that his grace is sufficient for me today, that he is alive, that he is active, that he is here, it is the best thing going. And I think sometimes we, we say, hey, we don't have the good news of the gospel. It's like the bad news of church. Come to church with me and hear about all the things you can't do. You know, there's freedom, there is grace, there is mercy. The same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead gets to live inside of you and me. And we get to operate in miracles and we get to extend that kingdom. 
Some of you guys don't believe me. You're, this has been our theme verse. You're a royal priesthood. And I think if we could just understand the weight of the glory, that we have a responsibility as a child of God, that yes, there are things that you're supposed to do, but those things are not to harm you. They're not to put you in a box called religion or lock you in. But in fact, you will receive great reward and you will receive fullness of joy. As you grow, as you get to be discipled, I love growing in community, in a community of warriors. And what happens, and here's what I think spiritual maturity is. Listen to me. You realize you get to. I think that's the biggest sign of spiritual maturity. You know, you talk to teenagers. I got to read this Bible. I don't understand. I got to worship. I abandon. Oh, this song's so long. And... Spiritual maturity says, I get to. That even in the middle of tragedy, I rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice in his peace that surpasses all understanding, guards my heart in Christ Jesus. That I consider everything a loss or rubbish except for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We get to. We get to fall in love. We get to worship. We get, and that's spiritual maturity. And here's what, here's what happens. When you understand that you get to, the rooftop doesn't look so good. Because you don't have time for the rooftop because you're on the battlefield where you're supposed to be extending the kingdom of grace, love, and mercy to a lost and dying world. I could stay there a long time. We get to. This kingdom, it's grace, it's mercy, it's healing. It's the kingdom of setting captives free. It's the kingdom of community where spiritual, physical, and emotional needs are met. And they're met by love of Christ Jesus and it's inside of you. And what stops us from advancing that kingdom, listen to me, what stops you from, the kingdom of God is always advancing. It's scripture, it's always advancing. And we get to partner with that advancement. And what stops you from being a part of that is your rooftop selfish decisions, your mess. Because we don't do what we're supposed to do and live in those selfish moments, we lose our purpose and our value in the community. I want to encourage you, you are a warrior And you get to have the responsibility to bring heaven to earth. Not doing what God designed you to do, it's messy. Let me tell you, it will be unfulfilling. It will be empty. It will lead to destruction and emptiness in your life. So one thing we have to do, we have to realize today, you're a warrior. Just turn to your neighbor and tell him that. You're a warrior. Just tell him, you're a warrior. That was weak. We'll move on to the next one. Number two. Selfishness is not only messy, but selfishness destroys community. Selfishness destroys community. Sometimes we don't understand community like we're supposed to, again, because we live in Western culture. You see, not only does your sin cause a mess for you, but your sin and your selfishness affects others. It affects others. Listen, you need to understand this. And this is where the honor and shame culture gets it right, and we don't. There's a community around you, your family, your work, your sphere of influence, even the next generation that can and will often be affected by your selfish behavior. That's heavy, but there's a biblical principle of sowing and reaping. And there's communal consequences when you choose to go outside of God's guidelines. You see, the sin, it just didn't impact David. 
It just, it, it just didn't affect it. It even just didn't impact David and Uriah and Bathsheba. But, but what the writer is telling us through this text, he's echoing over and over again. And I want you to understand this this morning. Sin is not private. It's not. It affects others. It affects the community. And although that David was acting like a normal king in, in the ancient Mediterranean world, God held him to a higher standard. And a higher, the higher standard and a higher uh, call to fulfill the purpose where he was called to be separate. David knew God's law and he knew it better than anyone. And his job was now to extend and teach that law to his family, to teach it into his palace. And in the platform that he had, which was king of Israel, was his job to extend that message. And now it's all broken. And so what does God do? God uses a prophet by the name of Nathan who would literally shame David to his face, who would say, you're the man. He tells a giant story of a man who robs uh, someone's flock, who was a pet, and tells this whole story. And David says, kill that man. And Nathan says, guess what? You're that man. And for the first time, listen to me, in public shame of a community, David's heart is open and wrenched. And that's where you get Psalms 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Steadfast spirit, restore to me. That whole, that whole message. See, here's, here's the point for us, that we're called to a higher standard. Your job is to extend God's will and purpose to your family, to your household, to this church, to your sphere of influence. And when we don't, it messes up the world around us. The job is missed. Selfishness destroys community. You may say, Pastor Jason, what I need to do in my life to, to build community I'm glad you asked. This is the next thing. This is the next thing on your notes. You need accountability. You need accountability. This is the hard one that, that we don't like in our culture. Uh, but you need Nathans in your life. You need people that will point out what's going on in your life, who will call you out. And I think to do this, we kind of, in our, in our culture right now, like never before, we have the lost art of teachability. And it's not just in the younger generation. I'm kind of in between. I'm in the middle, so I get to see both sides. But this younger generation, the argument is with millennials, is that they crave so much a coach. They crave so much a mentor. And I just want you to, and, and then when you actually coach them or tell them they're do wrong, they want to leave and they fail and they don't know how to deal with failure. And I, I just remember Little League football where the coach would grab my mask and yell at me. You idiot. I mean, he would say that lovingly, I'm sure. And why did you miss the tackle? <laughs> if you do that today, you're taken to prison. I mean, I'm just, I'm just telling you. Like, no one can tell anybody. And, and we have a generation that, that can't receive correction or can't be taught or teachable. Now, listen to me. Uh, okay, okay. Great news. But older generation, you're just as guilty. Now, watch. Truly being teachable is to be able to learn things again that you already think that you know. And to be able to open to actually some change in how you think. I've been there. I've experienced that. I got this. I know this. And I bought the t-shirt. And you have all the knowledge. And when someone approaches you, don't try to teach me. A little whippersnapper. You know. (laughs) It's both sides. It's being able to be taught something that you already think you know. That's true teachability. 
And so here's the, here's the thing with accountability. As we start getting serious in accountability in an honor-shame culture, it, it's real, it's transparent, it's out there, and it's, listen, it's not meant to send you into the pits, but it's meant to bring about and sharpen you. That's what community looks like. And it's messy. And it's messy. I, I, man, my time goes so quick with this. All right. Watch this. Write this down. True accountability is understanding that my actions need to be checked by the community because I know my actions affect the community. My actions need to be checked by the community because I know my actions affect the community. This is where we want to get at Faith Assembly. We need each other. We're better together. We say those things. You see, I, here's the point, me, you, we actually need a community of honor and shame. I need, I need you to honor me, and you need me to honor you. I think we do a terrible job celebrating people. We do a terrible job uh, what Romans 12 says that we should do, where we have joy with those who have joy, where we weep with those who weep or mourn with those. We do a terrible job at that in our culture. And see, the Bible calls us to that because sometimes when someone else gets something that we want, we hate it. I need you to say good job. I need you to celebrate. And you need celebration. You're created with the intention for affirmation in your life. You need that. But do you know just as much as you need honor, you need shame. You need that in your life. And I know, I know shame is a harsh word. Let's reword this. You need to tell somebody, love, somebody needs to tell you lovingly when you're being an idiot. Okay? You need that. You need that in your life. You need the Nathans in your life to point out where you're wrong. You see, this design of community, it's there, but it's messy. At the same time, it will push you forward for all that God has for you and bring you about where you need to be so you can operate in a contrite heart, which is what God honors. You need accountability in your life. As we close this morning, there are times in life when we feel like it's summer. And we want to take off. We want to skip out on what we're supposed to, supposed to be. And I think we've all been there. And I think if we could go back, we would probably do it different. So I don't, know, I don't know where you are or what part of this or where you are in your life. Maybe apathy has creeped in. Maybe entitlement and arrogance has creeped in. Maybe selfishness and you're living that out. And you find yourself in a mess and you know it's empty, but you still, you still put on this front and you've got these things in your life. I want to encourage you for even every child of God in here that this will be your battle. But understand that you are a warrior. That God has a fulfilling purpose for your life. He has a fulfilling purpose for your marriage, for your job, for your kids. And you play a vital role in this community of faith. Understand you're a warrior. To do that, you need to understand accountability in your life. I got to thinking, just as the band comes up, I, I got to thinking, what if, what if David could, what if David could rewrite the script? What if this, this chapter, chapter 11, read different? In a time when kings go out to war, David went to war. And he did what he was supposed to do, and he fought alongside Joab and Uriah, and he drove out 
the Ammonites in one of Israel's greatest victory in all of its territory. And he, with the help of his men, extended the kingdom of God. What if some of you in this room, you could rewrite your script? In the time of your busyness, in the time of absolute craziness at your job, in the time of your family with small kids, in the time of your nation with political unrest and social injustice, what if you, what if me, what if we went to war? Together, as a community, we extended the kingdom of heaven to earth. And we did together, didn't do what everyone else did, but we did what we were supposed to do. We followed Christ's mission. We, we lived out his charge to us, his kingdom, as he brought it from heaven to earth. What is that mission? I love how Jesus starts his ministry in Luke chapter 4. It says that the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Can I encourage you this morning that the spirit of the Lord is upon you? That, that he has anointed you, destined you, charged you, given everything that you need to proclaim good news. Not bad news, not wrath, not hell, but good news. Watch, watch what this good news does. It's, it's good news to the poor, the social injustice, the forgotten. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Does anybody know any captive people in this world who are bound by addiction, bound by depression, down by, bound by anxiety, down by worry, bound by fear? Everything's a wreck in their life. You and I, we have the answer to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind. Watch this. I love this part. To set liberty those who are pressed. And to proclaim, again, to proclaim good news, but to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We live in a world starving for favor. We live in a world starving for good news. We live in a world starving for the miraculous and the supernatural to happen and miracles to take place. And you and I have the answer because the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives inside you and lives inside me. And so what would happen if we woke up tomorrow morning with that calling that I'm a warrior? My job, my job is already anointed. It's already destined. It's already poured out upon me. And all I have to do is proclaim it. That's our heart. That's our heart. That's our heart for you. And so as... As we start this conclusion process again, may we do what we're supposed to do. And may we not let apathy and entitlement and think that we have it all together. May that not slip in. May you and I be warriors. May we, may we be accountable and may we be a community with one another. Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org.